0: That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: You might have noticed that witchcraft is a theme I return to in this podcast. So far, we've had witches in the rain and a teenage werewolf in the Basque. I make no apology for this. I'm going to keep on doing it because I think witch trials are fascinating both in themselves and what they tell us about life in the 16th and 17th centuries. So today we're going to examine witchcraft in early modern Germany. And the approach we have today is to see what trials of alleged witches can tell us about the psychology and emotions of those who were accused. And the interesting thing here is that it's possible to learn a great deal about these subjects when we focus on areas that had comparatively few cases. My guest today is Dr. Laura Kunin. Laura is Senior Lecturer in Early Modern History at the University of Sussex. With Michael Ostland, she edited the book Emotions in the History of Witchcraft and she's the author of Imagining the Witch, Emotions, Gender and Selfhood in Early Modern Germany. And I think you might be thinking about buying one or both of those after you've heard this. Laura, thank you for joining me today. I love talking about witchcraft. And I am really interested in your work because it takes such a different angle on the question, because the question we tend to ask of witchcraft trials is why they happened. It's a really important question. But you set out to ask some different questions. What did you want to know as you started out on this work?
2: Well, first of all, thank you, Susie, for inviting me to be here. It's really fun to be talking to you about witches. No, that's totally right. A lot of historians have focused on the why of witch persecutions, and we actually know a lot about that now, thanks to the work of some brilliant historians, some of whom we've talked to already, such as Lyndall Roper, Robin Briggs, Eric Middlefort, and um, Wolfgang Beringer. We now know and understand much more about why witch-hunting occurred. And that was, I think, to do with a heady mix of religious turmoil, bad weather and misfortune, neighbourly antagonisms, lack of centralised judicial control and deep-rooted fears of fertility and fecundity. In that sense, I felt that many of those questions had been answered very well. I felt that we still had more to learn about who was actually accused of witchcraft and what it meant to ordinary people to be called a witch, how they tried to defend themselves or make sense of this accusation made against them. And I was fascinated by how those put on trial, men as well as women, could find strategies to defend themselves against this charge and try to resist the identity of the witch being put upon them. So I think we often, when we think about witchcraft, accusations and trials, we tend to assume that it's an inevitable road to the stake, which is unsurprising given all the TV stuff about burning witches and everything like that. But actually, almost 50% of trials did not end in execution. So I thought there was a story there to be told about those who managed to avoid being executed for witchcraft and to learn more about how ordinary people actually tried to resist being condemned to the stake. I particularly became interested in really complex trials where the identity of the witch becomes contested, where magistrates can't even decide if the person is a witch, where witnesses sort of say, I don't know, is that person a witch or not? you know, where you have different conflicting statements, where sometimes even the accuser begins to question whether the accusation is true. And what I found in these trials, which are often really, really long, they can be hundreds of folios long, they can go over years, is that people aren't really sure what a witch is. And that really surprised me. I think we are so convinced that we know what the stereotypical witch looks like that everyone in the early modern period knew what a witch was and was really fervently hunting them out. But actually, a lot of people just don't know what a witch is or what they're meant to be doing and how we find them.
1: Okay, so there's loads of fascinating stuff we need to come back to that you've just said then. But maybe you could start by telling us about the sort of cases you've investigated. So, you know, what area of the world are you working on? What do your records
2: look like? So I have examined trials in the Duchy of Württemberg which is in southwestern Germany and this was the biggest territory in southwestern Germany with about 300,000 to 450,000 inhabitants so it's a really really large territory it's fiercely Lutheran but interestingly it only had around 350 witch trials over the whole early modern period. Around 600 people were investigated, 350 people were formally put on trial, and 197 of those ended in execution.
1: That's really interesting because that's a very small number by proportion of the population compared to elsewhere in the German states or other duchies.
2: Quite. So you'll know that the Holy Roman Empire was the heartland of the witch craze, around half of all witch trials took place in the Holy Roman Empire, and a lot of focus has been on areas of mass witch panics, which actually tells quite a different story to the one that I wanted to tell. You would probably struggle to do my investigation in areas of witch panics because the trials are much more formulaic and do tend to end in execution. This was a very low level of witch hunting, really, for such a big population, as you said, and I think that's why the trials are so interesting, because most magistrates would not be seasoned witch hunters. They might only come across one witch trial in their whole career, Mm -hmm. and so they really have no idea what they're looking for. They might have some ideas about what they're looking for, but that doesn't necessarily map onto what happens in these trial processes. So these trials tend to be very lengthy and not very standardised, you do sometimes get leading questions, or you get questions put to the magistrates to ask, but they do tend to go on for months, if not years. There's one that actually recommences after 12 years. I have one trial that I looked at that goes on continuously for two years, so the woman is in prison for 596 days. The trials tend to be quite lengthy, so from tens of folio up to one trial I've looked at is 600 folio. The trial of the mother of Johannes Kepler was in this region as well, which Alinka Rublack has looked at. That is incredibly lengthy. <laughs> also, it goes on for a very long time. So these are very detailed trials. The reports are from the district magistrate, which go to the high council, which sat in Stuttgart. So you see the correspondence between them. And you tend to get a lot of different characters come onto the stage. So you have the accused, obviously, and their narrative, and the accuser. This is all in the third person. But you tend to have lots of witness statements as well. And sometimes you'll get an expert witness. They were meant to theoretically actually go to the legal faculty in every case, but they didn't usually. But you do sometimes get a pastor trying to give some kind of character statement. And so these are really rich documents with a lot of different people coming into the fray, which I find very exciting, as you probably do as well, looking at these records, because we don't otherwise have records for any of these people. That's amazing. I mean, detailed trials
1: like that are such an incredible resource. As you say, they tell us about the lives of people we would otherwise have no record of, and they give us such insight into their daily life. I mean, that's one reason I find witchcraft trials so fascinating. So what sort of information do you get coming up in your trials?
2: I think what I found quite baffling to begin with when I was trying to write my book was I had previously looked at confessions of witches in a Catholic region where they were much more standardised. A woman met a handsome man in some pasture, The man offered her money, they slept together. Alas, afterwards she realised he had cloven feet and turned out to be the devil. So I had grand plans to write a whole chapter about the devil (laughs) in the shape of a man, etc. And what I found quite bizarre was that, well, first of all, the devil doesn't necessarily make much of an appearance, not in all the trials. And you don't actually often find out that much about what a witch is because they all seem rather confused about the matter. But you do learn a lot about everyday people and their relationships with one another because there are so many witness statements. And so you can piece together how people lived side by side. One thing I found really interesting was that you get quite a few statements from husbands of accused wives. And they're not necessarily love letters in the way that one might imagine. They can be quite pragmatic. One husband said of his wife, please let her free because I need her for harvesting.
1: (laughs) Well, better to be needed for that than nothing, I suppose.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But it tells you, you know, that women worked. They were really essential in the household economy. You know, you hear about how women borrowed salt from their neighbours, this kind of commodities of exchange. You learn a lot and it, it was really fascinating, but you don't necessarily learn about the things you think you'll learn about. So what the devil's meant to look like or what a witch should be. But they do tell you a lot about everyday interactions And about people's fantasies and fears, what people thought a witch might do to them. A lot of it's obviously about ill relatives and livestock, about dealing with misfortune, about how to explain the unexplainable. So you've touched a couple of times on this question of
1: what a witch was and how tricky that was. How was a witch defined?
2: That's a very good question. That's kind of what my book is about, which is... It's a lot harder to say than we might assume. Again, as I mentioned, I think because we have this image of this really ferocious witch hunting in this period, which is true to a point, we assume that everyone knows exactly what they're looking for. But actually, it's a very ambiguous category. And the definition of a witch can also vary from region to region, which makes things even harder. So it depends on legal and theological codes and beliefs. According to the legal code of the Holy Roman Empire, which is the Carolina, harmful magic was to be punished by death. So in theory, a witch was someone who practised harmful magic and that was what they could be executed for. However, this legal code was not uniformly applied to all of Germany. So in the region that I'm looking at, in southwestern Germany and in the Duchy of Württemberg, they do not distinguish between harmful and harmless magic But they actually say that a pact with a devil, even if no harm was caused, is deemed a spiritual crime worthy of death. So again, you can see straight away, there's not a completely uniform understanding of what a witch is supposed to be in a legal sense. So legally speaking, in the Duchy of Württemberg, it's someone who's made a pact with a devil. But in some other areas, it's someone who's committed harmful magic. I think in the Duchy of Württemberg, the idea of the witch is also heavily influenced by the Lutheran orthodoxy. And this was taught at the University of Tübingen and generations of pastors were trained in this Lutheran orthodoxy, which espoused a providential view of witchcraft. And I can explain what that means. Johannes Brenz is perhaps the most famous reformer who espouses Lutheran orthodoxy. And he gave sermons on witchcraft And he would argue, for instance, that hailstorms, which were generally understood by local people to come from a witch, were actually not caused by witches, but were God's way of punishing people for their sins. So if one had a bad crop, or there were hailstorms which ravished one's farmland, rather than trying to find someone to accuse of witchcraft one should actually look at oneself and ask what sins had I committed to befall this harm.
1: So does that explain why there are so many fewer trials in your opinion? Because talking with Robin Briggs about the duchy of Lorraine it seemed that with everything that was inexplicable particularly say the sickness of a cow or some other sort of animal misfortune, something that was going to affect someone's livelihood.
2: A lot of the time it was being explained by bewitchment. In theory, yes. Lutheran pastors said there is no point accusing a witch because witches cannot harm. That isn't to say that Lutheran pastors thought that witches shouldn't be punished. They thought they should be punished. But for their spiritual crime of turning away from God and making a pact with the devil... But they said, no, if you have a sick animal, if you have a dying child, if your crops are harmed, that is not because of witchcraft, that is because of the sins you have committed. So only repentance can help you. Now, that's the theory. But if that were the case, then no one would accuse anyone of witchcraft. But actually, on the ground level, I don't think that this message was 100% taken on because you do see people accusing their neighbours of bewitching their cattle or harming their children. And the magistrates do take this forward. And these do become trial proceedings. So we do see a real gap here between theological beliefs and what they're trying to tell their parishioners to believe. But still on the ground level, you do have a sense of people believing in witchcraft. And there must be some sense that the judicial elites also believe in witchcraft, otherwise there would have been no trial proceedings whatsoever. And ordinary people don't really care if their neighbour has turned away from God but has decided to believe in the devil. You know, most everyday accusations aren't really about theological belief. They're about harm and misfortune. So you do see a bit of a gap there between what the Lutheran pastors would like people to believe and actually what we see in the trial proceedings. But I certainly think this ambiguity helps lesser the witch persecutions that take place.
1: Now, many of the people who are accused of witchcraft, well, certainly the majority across Europe are female. And we've both worked on records of women on trial. Mine were before a church tribunal, yours before a criminal court. But the similarity comes from the fact that in both cases, they're women in a situation in which wrong is presumed, perhaps even expected of them. It's an age in which women are thought to be morally weak, in which they're being confronted with powerful men. So how did your women on trial negotiate their way
2: through this terrible sort of mire? This was one of the questions I was most interested in exploring. I think it's easy to assume it's a fait accompli that women accused of witchcraft in this deeply patriarchal, really misogynistic climate had no chance to defend themselves or have any kind of voice. But I feel this also does a disservice to the women who lived there. I mean, of course, it was heavily constrained and incredibly difficult. These women were often placed under torture... But one can find surprising resilience and, I would say, agency of these women to try and put forward a narrative of themselves. It might not be a narrative that we would expect. It might not even be a narrative of innocence completely. They might still say, ultimately, they are a witch. But they find ways, I think, to protect their honour, to say, you know, I'm a good wife I'm a God-fearing citizen, I'm a good neighbour. They also, I found, particularly in the region I look at, really try to search their conscience. Witchcraft, I think, is such a peculiarly interesting crime because it is a crime of intention and a crime of conscience, in a sense, because there's no physical evidence about most of the things that these people were meant to do. Do you have a spiritual pact with the devil? How do you show that? There's a case of a woman called Anna Muller who's accused of harming her neighbour's children. And the woman who accuses her says, you know, she breathed on her child in a malicious way and picked them out of their cot. But really, the physical evidence there is rather lacking. I mean, you know, you can breathe on a child, it doesn't mean you're going to kill them, and you can pick them out of a cot, and again, that doesn't necessarily indicate harm. So the magistrates and those on trial, you know, the accuser, the accused, the witnesses, have to think about, does this person have intention to harm? And so these cases often really meditate on the fact about whether this person has an evil core or not. And these women and men often really try to say, actually, in my heart, I know that I'm not a witch. I don't have these evil thoughts and feelings. And I think it's really interesting because we don't have sources for these people. These are usually illiterate women they're not writing these wonderful diaries or you know autobiographies so we don't really have any sense of how they think or feel and actually I'm not sure how often they really had to deliberate on their own thoughts and feelings until they're put on trial for witchcraft where really they are told to search their conscience to lay bare their heart and to really think about what kind of person they are. And it's a really interesting exploration of their own selfhood in that sense.
1: That is interesting. So is a testimony to one's own innate goodness, or at least perhaps a humble recognition of some wrong done but not being evil, a good way to seek to defend oneself
2: in Württemberg? I think women trod a perilously fine line here and it was not easy to defend oneself against this charge because obviously you don't want to confess because if you confess that is seen as the queen of proofs legally speaking but you also don't want to be too stubborn because that is also seen as a sign of witchcraft it's seen that your heart is cold and that your tongue is in the clutches of the devil and he's preventing you speak so you can't be too dog-headed and stubborn because then that's a sign of evilness. So you have to show the right amount of give. It's incredibly difficult. And they also look at physical signs of whether you're innocent or guilty. So you have to be able to cry if you're a woman because not being able to shed tears, again, a sign of witchcraft It's a sign of being evil. And you have to show the right amount of fear So there's one woman who has a 70 pound stone hanging off her and the magistrates say you know she's not shedding a single tear or any sign of what they call fear sweat and they think that can't be normal that must be diabolical. So you have to show the right amount of fear but you also still have to remain firm. So it's an incredibly difficult tightrope that these women walked I think if you're asking me, how do you best defend yourself against this charge? It's not easy. I think you see in these long trials that people try different narratives out. You know, if your trial is going on for many years, you know, you can try different things and try different strategies. I think the women who tended to be most successful generally had a man who was willing to defend them. So if it was a married woman and their husband was a pious man who was willing to give a testimony in defence of her, that was more likely to be successful. Whereas if you were an independent woman who made your own money, you had a much harder time of convincing the magistrates that you were innocent. There are some really fascinating cases where women, against all odds put such a strong defence of themselves. It's really unbelievable how they had the strength to do this. And one such case is of Anna Morshal, who was a widow of Aitaumere, who was accused of witchcraft in 1598. And she was imprisoned for 596 days and subjected to torture, held in chains. She wasn't allowed to see her children. She wasn't allowed to see her family members. She was kept cold. She was hardly fed, but she never confessed to witchcraft. And eventually, after 596 days, she was set free. And it's a really difficult trial to read, but it's really amazing as well. And she is granted the right to give some first person supplications. And as you probably know, working on trial records, when one does find a first person supplication, (laughs) it's one of the most exciting things ever because it's then more their voice. And she really documents the torture to which she was subjected. And she sort of thinks there's animosity against her by the magistrate who's putting this case against her. She did get help. She had some money, so she got help from a lawyer. And her son and son-in-law also drafted legal experts to help her. Her son or son-in-law, I can't remember which one was a pastor so I think there's also this theological language that she had access to but nonetheless regardless of all of that you know bear in mind she's a widow she has grown up children she's not young she manages to really put forward such a strong defense that they just cannot indict her in the end and she's set free and I think that's just a really remarkable story.
1: It is and I imagine we don't know anything more about her beyond that point is that right? We don't know how she's accepted back into society or anything.
2: No, I mean, that's the sad thing after all of this. One always wonders what happens to these people who do have to go back. Sometimes you do hear of cases where the population take matters in their own hands and, you know, actually physically punish the person. So there's not necessarily a happy ending to all of this, but it is still remarkable the resilience that one can read sometimes.
1: Yes, and I think, as I've written elsewhere, I think there's a discomfort that we have to live with in not having an ending. We want endings, we don't always get them.
0: Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell The Ancients podcast. What is The Ancients, I hear you say. Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names.
2: It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction.
0: We've got... The Big Topics.
2: The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that.
0: Subscribe to The Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot... Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: One thing you've done particularly with Witchcraft Trial Records in thinking about this moment where people had a chance to reflect on themselves, is that you're using the records to look at the kind of emotional and psychological world of the people on trial. How these alleged witches thought about themselves. Now, a historian working on this period is immediately kind of faced with a challenge when it comes to trying to access people's interior lives, you know. And when you're looking at trial documents there are further issues to do with... Can you get at people's authentic voices? We're getting them, as you said, in the third person. They've been transcribed by somebody else, etc. perhaps leading questions. So how have you gone about reading trial documents to access people's emotions and subjectivities?
2: You're exactly right. It's a real challenge about how and indeed whether we can access past people's emotions and subjectivities Especially, as you said, in such mediated records, such as trial records. They're often written in the third person. We occasionally get a first-person supplication, but that's really rare. Confessions were often taken under duress, so you you have this extra element of torture. And it also depends on the locality and the kind of record. I think the area I look at, the records are so detailed that they do lend themselves slightly better to looking at people's thoughts and feelings than, say, a place of mass witch hunting, where it's a very standardised confession with lots of leading questions and then lots of names of other people who are witches. You know, you don't necessarily get these different narratives there. And actually, I think it's still quite controversial to say that you're looking at people's emotions in the past. I spent a bit of time in the History of Emotions Centre in Berlin where there were a group of us, thinking intensely about whether it's possible and how we even begin to do this, a lot of historians of witchcraft, particularly German-speaking historians, actually say, no, you can't. You cannot use these trial records to look at the people who were on trial. The best you can hope for is some understanding of maybe the judges or the interrogators' beliefs, but you cannot get access to the actual person on trial. So I would say that this is still quite an explorative approach. But I personally think it's really important that we try to think about the people who are put on trial and to try and give them some agency in the ways that they shape their narrative. So myself and others like Lyndall Roper and Michael Ostling, with whom I wrote a book about emotions and the history of witchcraft, I think we are rather more optimistic about reading records for a glimpse onto people's emotions and subjectivities. Malcolm Gaskell has recently emphasized that in witch trials, as in few other early modern sources, we hear the expressions of feeling made by humble people. And Michael and I note in our own work that there is a temptation and indeed a duty to heed to such expressions, Of these past people, but also a responsibility not to ventriloquise their voices. We don't want to sort of give them maybe more agency than they actually had, but I think we do have to do some justice to the people who were put on trial, who really, really fought to have a voice heard. And the way in which one does this, well I think it's very difficult, but I think I do this by reading very closely many many times these records and trying to read against the grain which I think most people who work with trial records try and do but also to think about gaps and inconsistencies you know these aren't necessarily neat stories and I think that's where one sometimes sees something quite exciting and also about recurring motifs and images and language that are used for instance I never really thought about conscience before I started reading these trials. I thought about the devil, I thought about sex, (laughs) and I thought about all these exciting things, but really they just kept talking about their conscience. And I think you can then begin to slowly not get an unmediated view onto someone's inner life. I'm not sure that's possible for any historical record at any time, but one can begin to sort of really pay attention to the stories that are being told and the context in which they're being told. So Michael Osling puts it really neatly. One does not discover the individual by subtracting discourse and examining what is left over, nor by peeling away convention and motif to reveal an authentic call. People express their subjectivity to themselves as to others through the motifs and structures available. And I think that's a really exciting way of thinking about it. So Lyndall Roper herself has said, witchcraft was one of the motifs and structures available for people to give voice to their inner feelings. And I think it's about listening carefully and trying to give these people some justice and think about the way that they try to survive and to cope and to improvise and do the best in a very, very difficult situation.
1: Well, you've just given the most brilliant summary and analysis of this question of whether we can hear the voices of these ordinary people, or as it was termed in a famous article, can the subaltern speak? You're absolutely addressing this question of whether we can ever get at their voices. And I think the way that you've presented it in this kind of recognition of the limitations of that, but also thinking about what can be done, I think is really brilliant, Now going back to that idea about how they understand witchcraft, the other thing that really strikes me, and perhaps this ties into emotion as well, is that if we've got on the one hand ideas about witchcraft and on another hand these ideas about a spiritual crime, committing oneself to the devil, diabolical pact or even demonic possession, when we get to emotions we also might be thinking about things like mental illness. Do these things overlap in your research? Have you found these things coming together?
2: It's a really interesting question. It's a very difficult question to answer because it's easy to put our own understandings of mental illness and project them necessarily onto the past. I do think you do see a bit of overlap. I have one case in 1678 of this woman called Dorothea Riga and she voluntarily confesses, not actually to being a witch, but she confesses that the devil used her sins and that she belonged under the gallows, and yes, one should burn her. She's a 74-year-old widow, and she's known to suffer from feeble-mindedness. So this is in the trial record, that they say she has feeble-mindedness, and it kind of waxes and wanes. And she confesses to some really quite astounding things. She claims she's committed adultery with over 100 men, including recently the town mayor, which is obviously not seen as particularly credible given the fact that she's a 74-year-old widow, but not seen as so incredulous that they don't actually investigate this further and talk to the town mayor. So again, there's an interesting ambiguity there. She doesn't say she's a witch. She says the devil is in her and presses on her heart and on her throat and that she can't speak. So it, it does sound almost like demonic possession, but eventually she does say, yes, she is a witch because I think My reading of it is that she wants to die and she thinks actually confessing to witchcraft is the surest way of being executed for her crimes. So it's a suicide by proxy where you don't actually have to commit suicide in the event she actually dies before the trial finishes. But it's really unclear and the magistrates themselves aren't really sure, you know, Was she a witch? Was she not? They decide she is worthy of a Christian burial and decide really that she was just a melancholic woman and that she had confessed her crimes. But then the populace actually come bearing arms and prevent this Christian burial from taking place because they believe that she is a witch. So there's a lot going on in that trial. You see that she's potentially melancholic, potentially demonically possessed, potentially a witch, or actually none of those things. And I've started my new project where I'm looking at criminal records in the 18th century, which is really after the period of witch hunting. And you see that this legacy of the supernatural really continues. So there's one example of a woman called Sabina Grubler in 1777 who kills her husband and his brother's son with an axe. And she claims she does this out of love because we all have to die in the end. And she believes that everyone is suffering from this fatal illness where their eyes shine red. And this is not a witch trial, but it really shows that there is still a very strong belief in the supernatural well into the 18th century, which is really seen as the age of enlightenment. In these 18th century trials, you get medical experts giving testimonies. So people try to decide, is she mad, is she not? And you know, then there's all these questions about again, demonic possession. So I think they are related. And I think the story goes well beyond the age of the witch trials.
1: And it's interesting also, you talked about melancholy, which we might consider to be depression or mental illness, talked about madness. And I suppose the other category we consider is learning disabilities, which did have a way of being figured in this period, at least in England. I think when they talk about, I'm using contemporary language here, so please don't take offence, anyone listening. But, you know, they talk about idiots and fools. And this is the language, natural fools, that they use to talk about people who we would say have learning disabilities. And perhaps in Dorothea's case, that feels like there are some resonances of that perhaps as well.
2: Yeah, they don't use that language. They seem to think of it as feeble-mindedness. But I think they do see her as suffering, for sure. And I think they are aware that she seems to want to end her life, But you do see sometimes they actually say that one woman has a stupid face. They don't think that she completely understands what's being said of her on trial. And they do try to show some awareness of this. There's a case of a man who's 20, which is, well, unusual in both ways. A young man, you don't tend to assume young people get accused of witchcraft and you don't assume men get accused of witchcraft. And he confesses to being a witch... This is in the 1630s. And he says that some women gave him a salve and 20 women came to his prison cell and they danced in the prison cell between 12 midnight and 4am. And the magistrates just don't believe him. <laughs> Despite the fact he's on trial for being a witch, they say, well, look, 20 women can't fit in your prison cell. <laughs> this doesn't seem like this could be true. And they suggest to him that he might be suffering from a beard dream And that it's the folly of youth, that maybe he was just drunk and he's young and he's stupid. And so they seem to give him a bit of a free pass, probably because he's a man, partly, but because of his age and they just think, well, you know, he just doesn't know better and he's just been drinking too much beer. (laughs) I love the practicality there. No, they just couldn't fit in.
1: I mean, there's just just not enough space. And also, let's put it down to alcohol. No, the woman, no, no, she's definitely a witch. But the man, he's just drunk. Does that give us an insight into how the trials of men and women compare in this region?
2: I think that is quite a good example, yes. You spoke to Robin Briggs, who's also done really amazing work with witch trials in Narain. And he's looked at male witches as well and he concluded that really there's more variation within the sexes as, as between them and i would say that's more or less true for my cases too you don't really see just one type of man in some regions shepherds for example you know male shepherds who are accused of witchcraft you don't see one kind of man being accused and one kind of woman you actually see quite a spectrum of age of marital status You see some richer people, some poorer people. So there is certainly a lot of variation within the sexes. But it does seem to me, as I said earlier, that if a woman had a defence of a man, she was more likely to be set free. And it does seem that there was just a bit more scepticism about whether a man could really be a witch. The fact this man is confessing to all of these things, but they actually really try and steer him in a different direction and say, are you sure? (laughs) And I don't necessarily know one would see that quite so clear cut in a female case. So I would definitely say that there aren't crystal clear patterns and it is striking sometimes the similarity between male and female cases. And it's also striking about how much variation there could be within male witch trials and female witch trials but there does seem to be slightly more lenience paid sometimes to the confessions of men.
1: Given that we have this testimony from men defending women, and perhaps there are other instances of this too, do you think the records give us insights into the relationships between the sexes?
2: Absolutely. And this was actually something that I was really surprised by. I came sort of wanting to learn more about women. I was deeply influenced and admire the work of people like Lyndall Roper and Diane Perkis. And so I'd read all these books about witches, you know, learning about women through these witch trials and about female antagonisms. So I wasn't really expecting to see so many men. Even if you're not looking at a male witch trial, I was just surprised about actually how many male characters come onto the stage. I mean, obviously, you have the interrogators and the torturers, we know that they're always going to be men. But the number of witness statements from men that you find is actually really large. I mean, you know, they often ask men to talk about their female neighbours. As I've said before, you get husbands coming to the defence of their wives. So you might be looking at a female witch trial, but then you see the testimony of their husband. And then you have some really interesting cases, really exciting cases, two exciting cases that I looked at, my favourite ones, which were about stolen manhood, which is not a euphemism. <laughs> it was about a man accusing a woman of literally stealing their manhood.
1: So is this, in France, is there something called the aguillette, which is where the tying a knot and then it, a man you know, can't consummate a marriage or he can't perform after that point in time. Is that what's going on? And that's often blamed on witches.
2: Yeah, exactly. So you have the tying the knot thing. One of the cases, it's about that and it's about essentially impotence and not being able to consummate. There's another one where, and this is rather bizarre, because you think, why did they just not check? But he actually claims his manhood disappears (laughs) entirely. But bizarrely, there doesn't seem to be a physical examination. Yeah, it feels like a moment where you'd have to drop the trousers to be sure. Yeah, (laughs) it could have been an easy solution, right? No, so there's one case where a man accuses a woman. So Conrad Streich accuses a woman, Anna gearpard of stealing his manhood on his wedding day. And he accuses her of touching him in a frivolous way on his wedding day and making rather lewd comments, saying, you know, we need to renew our friendship. Anyway, from that day forward, he becomes impotent. But what's really striking about this case is Konrad Streich was an upstanding citizen. He was a burgher. He had connections with the ruling magistrates. And Anna Gearpard, who he accuses, has a bad reputation. So one would assume that this accusation would stick and that she might be accused and executed for witchcraft. As it turns out, and I haven't really figured out why, she rebounds the accusation and he ends up on trial for slander. So he ends up having to defend himself against the accusation he's made against her, all about his stolen manhood. And it's an incredibly juicy (laughs) trial, as you can imagine, with a huge amount of detail about everything, including his manhood. And really, you learn a lot about his fears, also the pressures on men to get married and to perform and to become the head of a householder. You know, this was a deeply patriarchal society, but men could also be victims of that. And you learn a huge amount about the relationship between the sexes in this. It's really about he felt that she shouldn't have talked to him in that way. And then he accuses her of manhood. And then she accuses him of slander, etc, etc. Then her husband comes to her defence. So yes, you do learn a lot about the relationship between the sexes. And again, I just can't think of any other historical record which would allow you this kind of glimpse onto these variegated lives and how deeply complex they were as well and how gender was not rigidly defined or lived there might have been rigid gender ideals but actually the way that people lived and gave meaning to their bodies was actually quite fraught and often had to be quite contested and I find that really exciting that you really can learn about also the physical understandings of gender through these trials. I was really amazed at how much one could learn about men, even in female witch trials. I think, again, that was a story I hadn't really read. So
1: it seems there's an awful lot here, but to ask you to summarise rather unfairly, what ultimately do you think we can learn from the trials that we wouldn't
2: otherwise know? Well, let's put it this way. Despite my best intentions, I keep coming back to witch trials, (laughs) you know, now writing a new book about witchcraft and the witch from the early modern period to the present. And I also work, as I said, in these 18th century criminal records. I think these are just extraordinary records. And I think they're so deeply valuable because they open up questions onto the everyday lives of people who are otherwise lost to us in the historical record men and women, and the relationship between the two, as he said. And one thing that I found really surprising is that one might not use witch trials really to learn that much about witches, (laughs) or to learn about the devil. But one can catch glimpses of people's relationships and feelings about how gender was lived and grounded in their body, in their physicality, and about how people just did their best To survive in highly challenging situations. And I think by paying really close attention to these individuals' narratives, sitting with these narratives and being okay with the contradictions and the inconsistencies and the battlement of them, we might not be able to save these people from the stake, but we can serve them some justice. And that's why I think they're just such great sources.
1: Amen to that. Laura, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. It's deeply fascinating and has just been a real treat. So, thank you for that. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment.
0: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first
1: order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built – A house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age. A house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.